The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Sean Sellers. He is a co-founder and senior investigator at the Fair Food Standards Council. The council launched in 2011, and what it does is monitor the development of a sustainable agricultural industry. And a sustainable agricultural industry is one that advances the human rights of farm workers, the long-term interests of growers, and the ethical supply chain concerns of retail food companies and consumers. We're going to talk about the Fair Food Program, the Fair Food Standards Council, but I want to just let you know a little bit of background. I first met Mr. Sellers because we were both involved with the Kellogg Foundation, where we were both food and community fellows through the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. And most recently, I heard him speak at the annual forum that's put on by Beyond Pesticides. And I just want to let our listeners know that Mr. Sellers' writing has appeared in The Nation, Huffington Post, Race, Ethnicity, and the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Law and Social Change. So welcome. It's good to have you with me. Thank you so much for having me, Melinda. Pleasure to be here. Well, you have an interesting background in that you've been interested in fields of human trafficking and corporate social responsibility and sustainable food, and you hold both a master's and a bachelor's from the University of Texas at Austin. And I also want to let our listeners know that you've also harvested watermelon, so you've done the farm work in the heat. But what was it that led you to this field of study and this field of work? Well, I first learned about the realities of farm labor when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Texas. I attended educational events that were put on by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And for any of your listeners who aren't familiar with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers or CIW, they're a farm worker organization out of southwest Florida that's really been doing some remarkable work for the past 20, 22 years. They were founded in the early 90s by a group of workers in the town of Immokalee in Collier County, Florida. The workers were primarily from Mexico, Haiti, and Guatemala, and they were working in a number of jobs in the agriculture sector in Florida. Now, in that particular area, tomatoes is a major, major crop. And some of your listeners may not know that Florida is actually one of the leading producers of tomatoes in the country, and particularly for fresh market tomatoes that are grown in the winter months. So between October and June, Virtually all of the fresh market tomato production in the U.S. is coming out of Florida. So it's a tremendously important industry in the state. It's important nationally. And that industry is made possible um, by the work of tens of thousands of workers who plant the crops, prune, take care of, and ultimately harvest. And that's how that product gets to market. So the Coalition of Immokalee Workers started really as a response to a lot of the abusive conditions that workers were facing at that time, and we can speak a little bit more about that in a moment, perhaps. But their early phase of work was really trying to compel the growers in the area to come to the table 
and negotiate around uh, wages, working conditions. That effort was met with limited success. They had some victories, but they weren't really able to move the needle as much as they would have liked. And just for some background information, wages had been stagnant for tomato harvesters since the late 1970s. Virtually all of that work is paid on a piece rate basis, which means for every bucket of tomatoes you fill and take to the field truck, you receive a token. And at that time, that token was usually worth, you know, 40 to 45 cents. So in the face of uh, a couple of decades of stagnant wages, you know, that led to annual earnings of somewhere between eight and $12,000 a year, in the face of often abusive conditions uh, at the hands of field supervisors, the crew leaders or crew bosses, um, and this could include physical violence for the you know, 10 to 20% of the workforce that's female. It can include um, at least sexual harassment, often sexual assault and forms of um, of that nature. And in the worst case scenario, workers were actually experiencing situations of modern day slavery or forced labor operations. And so this was in the extreme, and this would be instances where workers were actually being held against their will, forced to work for little or no pay with the threat or actual use of violence. And in the late 90s, the CIW began to investigate and uncover a number of these slavery operations. And they weren't just involving one or two workers. I mean, some of these cases involved hundreds of workers at a time who were in that type of situation. So the CIW, realizing that they weren't making much headway with the efforts to get the growers to the table locally, had a strategic reevaluation, a shift in their strategy around 2000. And that's when they began to realize that the fast food industry and other large food service providers and retail food companies actually played a tremendous role in the industry. And so before this, the CIW's view of the situation was really rather local and provincial. And there were workers, there were crew leaders, and there were growers. And that was sort of the world as it existed. With this new formulation, there was all of a sudden a very powerful set of actors that were introduced. And those are those retail companies I was mentioning and the more they dug into this, they began to realize that these companies weren't just passively buying tomatoes off a market, but they were playing a very active role in shaping that market. And what I mean by that is the rise of highly consolidated purchasing, right? So looking at something like the rise of Walmart, for example, which pools its purchasing power and uses that to often negotiate lower prices from its suppliers. And that's, that's sort of the whole model that's how those economies of scale work. And so that's a process that's neutral in many ways in terms of intent, but the unintended outcomes of that process mean that growers are having to do more with less. And so growers were really caught in a vice. And on the one hand, the input costs for their operations, fertilizer, seed, pesticides, land, farm equipment, all of those things, the costs were really beyond their control and they were rising. And then the price that they were getting for their product at the farm gate was falling. And so as that price is steadily falling that they were getting for their tomatoes in this case, the one area where they were really able to exert some control and maintain their profit margins was over the price that they would pay for labor. So when the CIW began to realize that the high-volume consolidated purchasing practices of these large retailers were actually, in effect, driving down wages at the worker level, that presented a tremendous opportunity. So the CIW seized that opportunity and began to 
demand that these large retailers actually reverse that process a bit and that they agree to pay a marginal amount more for their tomatoes. In this case, a penny more per pound became the demand. And that these retailers require that their suppliers, the growers, adhere to a human rights-based code of conduct that would guarantee basic workplace protections for these workers. So naturally, given that these retailers were the target of the CIW's campaign, they began to reach out to consumers. And so this is a very long-winded explanation for how it was that I began to learn of the CIW, which was uh, I was a student at the time at the University of Texas, and they were doing outreach to student groups across the country. And uh, they came to our campus, they did a presentation, and I learned a lot about the conditions that I just shared with you right now. Yeah, and I remember, I don't know if you were on this trip, but one of our fellow fellows had invited me to come down to Immokalee, Florida, and look at some of the working conditions, and I was absolutely appalled. And I think that people would want to know where their food comes from and how it was raised, you know, under what conditions. I'd like to think that's the case. But there were exactly, as you described, these slave-like conditions. And, gosh, I don't remember now how many people I saw living in one shabby, broken-down structure and how much they had to pay of their low wages just to live there. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to interview you is because I wanted to tell the story of a positive change to this kind of environment and how consumers can work with farm workers and organizers to help make sure that our food doesn't have blood on it, is what I like to say, but that it doesn't come from a a workforce that's been exploited. Sure. Well, I think you're correct. This really is a story of transformation and I mean, look, this was a this was an intractable problem for generations, and it's really been a tremendous advance that the CIW has brought about through the Fair Food Program, and we can speak perhaps in a moment about how that works. Consumers absolutely do play a crucial role in that process. It was the alliance of workers and consumers that helped propel this forward and presented a, a united front, in, in a sense, to the retail companies. And it's very important that the retail companies heard from their consumers and heard the message that in the 21st century, the expectations were going to be a little bit different. You know, information technology has made the world a much smaller place. So abuses that may have remained hidden, say, in the 1950s or 1960s, weren't going to remain hidden in the same way in the 2000s. And you know, retail companies, for their part, they have a lot of different risks they have to manage in their operations, you know, a variety of risks. And what the Fair Food Program offers is a way of addressing one of those risks and saying, this program helps ensure that you're not going to wake up tomorrow with a slavery headline in your supply chain. And just a note about the use of the term slavery or forced labor, the CIW has always been very careful to present it that, you know, the conditions in the industry across the board historically have been very bad. Wages have been low. The abuses I described have existed. There's been wage theft. But when something actually tips over into forced labor or slavery, the CIW is using that term really as it's defined by the U.S. federal government and the Department of Justice. So these specific seven slavery operations that the CIW uncovered, investigated, and assisted in the prosecution of actually met that federal standard definition of the term. So I just think it's important to make that clarification. You know, otherwise, it can kind of come across as perhaps activist hyperbole. But these were actual cases that were successfully prosecuted in federal court 
a dozen crew leaders or crew bosses, field supervisors, I have been sent to federal prison on these charges. And that was something that was happening at a very regular clip in the 15 to 10 years before the Fair Food Program. And what's truly remarkable, and these cases were actually so regular that one federal prosecutor, again, not a, not a bunch known for their hyperbolic rhetoric, a federal prosecutor actually dubbed Florida ground zero for modern slavery in the 2000s. And that was in response to this steady stream of forced labor prosecutions coming out of the agriculture industry. But what's truly remarkable and, and where I was going with this is that in, we've now completed our fourth year, our fourth season of the fair fruit program in Florida tomatoes. And the industry is widely recognized as having gone from being one of the worst working environments in American agriculture to the best. And that is the opinion of public policy experts. It's been written about in the front page of the New York Times. And specifically on the issue of forced labor, this program has been recognized. There's been, first, just the the metric, there's been zero cases of forced labor on participating growers' farms in the fair food program. Zero. So it went from ground zero for modern-day slavery to zero cases in just four years. And it's been so effective that the program is actually being looked at as a model for the prevention of forced labor and corporate supply chains in a number of industries across the world. And as a matter of fact, in January of this year, 2015, the CIW actually received the Presidential Medal for Extraordinary Efforts in Combating Human Trafficking. And that was presented by Secretary of State John Kerry. So the program just on the human trafficking, modern-day slavery, forced labor front is being recognized as best in class and has really set the gold standard for prevention. And what's equally remarkable is that it's not just on that particular topic that the program's been so effective. It's being lauded by experts on the issue of gender-based violence in the workplace. There have been zero cases of sexual assault reported on Fair Food Program farms in the past two years. And this is in an industry where uh, the best studies estimate that three out of four female farm workers in the United States experience severe forms of sexual harassment on a routine basis. And sexual harassment almost feels like an inadequate term to describe the behavior that women face in the fields. There is, historically, has been a culture of near impunity. It is a heavily male work environment. Women have been often expected to perform sexual favors for field supervisors, in exchange for work assignments, and that's been embedded in the culture of the industry in many places for decades. The program has been incredibly effective at addressing that behavior. Supervisors understand that their jobs depend on it, and growers understand that their viability in the market depends on providing a safe workplace for their employees. And it may be a good opportunity for us to discuss a little bit about the structure of the program and and how it actually works. Yeah, I definitely want to do that. I just want to remind our listeners that if they're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Mr. Sean Sellers. He is a co-founder and senior investigator at the Fair Food Standards Council. And if I might, before we jump in and get to the meat of the council's work, I just want to reiterate something that you said about the use of the term slavery. And I think it's very important that we remind our listeners that this is not hyperbole. And I remember seeing myself where the farm workers had been chained to the inside of a truck. A box truck. A box truck, right. 
And if you can imagine being in the fields all day in the heat and then being chained to this truck box, that's certainly what slavery looked like in, in Immokalee. So you've got a happy ending to a very dire situation. So tell me about the Fair Food Standards Council and what you do. Okay. Well, the work of the Fair Food Standards Council, simply put, is to monitor compliance within the Fair Food Program. So the structure of the program is pretty simple and straightforward. There are 13 major retailers that have committed to this program. They've signed binding agreements with the CIW that stipulate the two conditions I mentioned earlier, that they'll pay a price premium on their tomatoes, and we ensure that that's paid down to farm workers in the supply chain. To date, nearly $20 million in extra income has gone out to farm workers over the past four years as a result of these premiums. And the second condition or second term of these agreements, these fair food agreements, is that the suppliers require their growers adhere with a fair food code of conduct. And so this is a a set of standards based in human rights theory that outline basic workplace protections. So it requires, for example, that workers be directly hired by the growers themselves. So this cuts through the issue of subcontracting. It eliminates a lot of the power that crew leaders traditionally had over their workers because in many cases, workers would be employees of the crew leader as opposed to the company itself. The program requires that workers receive training on their rights and responsibilities under the program so that they're aware of the protections that do exist as well as being aware of redress mechanisms that exist. This training happens at the point of hire uh, in the form of written and video materials that were produced by the CIW. It also happens face-to-face on company time, on the clock, when the CIW comes out to the farms and does essentially these in-person educational workshops for the workforce. The program has strict protections around any form of harassment, discrimination, uh, verbal abuse, There are zero-tolerance provisions for forced labor, for sexual assault, sexual harassment with physical contact, any form of violence is a zero-tolerance offense. Um, There are protections around timekeeping systems, which may sound like a bit of a snooze fest to some of your listeners, but is actually a huge quality of life difference, has made a huge quality of life difference for workers as well as as a significant difference in their incomes. And just one small anecdote there um, to to kind of unpack that a little bit. Traditionally, workers in the Florida tomato industry were brought out to the fields very early in the morning, as early as 6 o'clock, 6.30, and they then had to wait for the fruit to dry. You don't pick large round tomatoes when they're wet. It's how pathogens spread. It's bad for the plants. It's bad for the fruit. So they may not actually start working until 10 o'clock. Now, the law has always been very clear that their time should be kept from the time they arrive to the grower's property at the call time. But in practice, for decades, what happened was the time records were manual logs maintained by the crew leaders, and they would just say, we started picking at 10 o'clock today, so that's what time you started working. And so that's you know two up to three hours of unpaid wait time, unrecorded compensable time. And when you add that up day after day, week after week, year after year, It was a massive and systemic source of wage theft that workers experienced. And there, on the personal level, is a real opportunity cost to that. For for single men um, working in the industry, that's time they're not spending resting. It's a very 
physically arduous job. You tear up a lot of muscle out there and you need time to recuperate. Well, that's time you're not getting to sleep in or rest when you're being dragged out to the fields three hours earlier than necessary. For farmworker families, it often meant parents dropping their child off with a, with a child care provider, a neighbor, early in the morning at 5.30 or 6. That neighbor then getting the, the kids to school. Um, it meant never having a breakfast with your child. It meant never walking your, your child to school. And so all of that's changed as a result of the program. The growers have readjusted their start times to more closely approximate the beginning of actual work time. So for the first time, parents are being able to walk their kids to school and have breakfast with them, and that makes a tremendous difference in people's lives. Yeah. The program also has strong protections around workplace health and safety, so making sure workers are not present when pesticides are being applied in the field, that shade structures are being provided, which is not required by law, mind you, but is a protection that the code is able to guarantee, making sure that workers are able to stop working if there is lightning happening. Florida is the lightning capital of the United States, and every year there are workers who die in Florida and Georgia and the southeast because they're struck by lightning in the field. So under the Fair Food Program, if you see lightning, you go to the bus. So a number of protections like that, protections around um, housing. And so the question then is, okay, standards are good, protections are good, but how do you enforce this? Because right. it really, it, you know, in the final analysis, it all comes down to enforcement. A fair amount of the work we do is actually simply enforcing laws that were on the book. You know, the code is a, is a mix of legal baselines and protections that extend beyond the law. But the timekeeping example I cited, that was simply an unenforced law for decades. You know, and we've been able to come in and, and make sure it's enforced. And so how do we do that? And this is really where I think the, the program shines, is in the attention it pays to monitoring and enforcement. So there's three principal components of this. The first is the worker education that I mentioned that happens at the point of hire and that happens on the clock when the CIW comes and presents this information to workers. It's a worker-to-worker education process. They're receiving the information in a language they understand, whether that's Spanish or Haitian Creole or English. It's in simple language that can be easily understood. It uses very topical, uh, relevant examples from workers' daily experience and the whole gist of this is designed to make sure workers understand the protections that exist and what the redress mechanisms are. So that's step one. Step two is that we operate at the Fair Food Standards Council a 24-hour complaint hotline. We answer, uh, it's, it's bilingual, um, we will answer, like I said, 24 hours. We do detailed intakes of the calls we receive where we are able to um, rely on the information we've gathered in our database and through other sources to really pinpoint where someone, you know, oftentimes a worker may not know exactly where they're working. Uh, if they're illiterate, for example, and can't read their payslip, they may not know the company name. They just know the name of the, the crew leader. And so we're able to figure out where, you know, where they're working, do an intake on the complaint, and begin a very rapid resolution process. And just to explain a little bit about that um, without going too much into the weeds, you know, traditionally, even when workers would come forward with complaints. I mean, first of all, very few workers came forward with complaints because retaliation was so embedded in the industry that to speak up on the job in any form usually just meant losing your job. It meant you didn't get on the bus again the next day. And so it was just a generally, you know, keep your head down, do the work, suck it up for as long as you can, and then move on. 
there are strict, strict protections against retaliation in the fair food program, and it's something that could really land an offending supervisor or company in a lot of hot water. So guaranteeing that workers at that basic level have the right to come forward and make a complaint, but then you have to have an effective investigative and uh, an effective resolution process for that. And what's really interesting about the program is that it's complaint investigation and resolution process is done collaboratively with the growers. It's not an adversarial process. It is a fact-finding process where both the growers and FFSC contribute and come to a resolution that's going to be acceptable for all parties. It's also a process where it's not a knee-jerk, the worker is always right process. The statistics in our annual report show the percentage of valid versus non-valid complaints And it also shows that we've been able to reach resolutions on issues where maybe it wasn't actually a code violation that was being alleged, but we were still able to come to a solution that led to better employee-employer relations. And that's great. It helps growers become employers of choice. It leads to a more productive workplace. helps reduce turnover. And all those things are good for the company. So then the third step of our monitoring process is a very rigorous, an ongoing audit process. And I'm actually speaking to you from Beaufort, South Carolina today. We were up here on an audit trip, and um, these audits are really deep dives into the company's operation. We do a detailed management systems review with the company where we start at hiring and registration, and we go all the way to health and safety, cover everything in between, timekeeping, um, the types of training they provide their supervisors on HR issues, all sorts of stuff. We then go into the field where we speak with the workers. And if you know our, our workforce sample size is 50%, so if a farm with 400 workers, for example, we're going to speak with 200 of those workers, which is quite a bit higher than most audit protocols actually seem to use. But we feel it's important to speak with as many people as possible while we're out there. And we do detailed interviews with the supervisors, the crew leaders as well. Uh, we visit housing and then all of this is followed up by an in-depth payroll audit and financial review to make sure that their timekeeping systems have been accurately implemented, that workers are being paid, and the wages they're owed, that minimum wage is being complied with, and that that fair food premium, the penny per pound, is being distributed as a line item bonus on workers' pay slips. When areas of risk or noncompliance are detected, we draft corrective action plans with the company and their detailed roadmaps to compliance. And that then provides the baseline for the following audit. So there's really nothing like this out there in the world of social responsibility that provides this complete wraparound package of services to the growers. And it's that sort of wall-to-wall monitoring and the comprehensive corrective action plans that have led to this remarkable progress in just four years, where, as I mentioned earlier, the industry went from being considered one of the worst working environments in American agriculture the best. Well, Sean, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today about this program, and I want to get our listeners to the website to learn more, and that's simply fairfoodstandards.org. And what I like about the 2014 report on all of your work here is that it identifies which buyers and growers are participating. So we as consumers can get behind the program. We can contact buyers and growers, those who are participating in the program, and say, thank you, this means a great deal to me. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank 
My guest, again, Mr. Sean Sellers, co-founder and senior investigator at the Fair Food Standards Council. They are based in Sarasota, Florida. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Mr. Sellers, thank you so much for doing this work and for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. 